Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, April, as you know, today's guest has been on my dream guest list for years at this point. Mm-hmm. I have so long <laughs> Followed and admired the trailblazing force of nature that is Beth Ann Hardison, the pioneering model turned modeling agent and activist who hands down is one of the fashion industry's most influential and important mover and shakers. She has been an instrumental and continues to be, I should say, an instrumental and driving force and quite literally changing the face of fashion. And Beth Ann's decades-long commitment, and I'm talking 50-plus years here, <laughs> and hard-won fight for the inclusion and celebration of Black models in the fashion industry is at the heart of the new Magnolia Pictures documentary, Invisible Beauty. Co-directed by Beth Ann and Frederick Chang, the film is essentially a memoir of Beth Ann's incredible life, work, and seismic impact. It features intimate interviews with her son, Kadeem Hardison, and fashion luminaries, including Iman, Tyson Beckford, Tracy Ellis Ross, Zendaya, Pat Cleveland, Naomi Campbell, all of whom you're going to hear from in this short trailer before we hear from Beth Ann. I always know you can change things. I've done it before. Everyone's talking about diversity and inclusion. That directly stems from the work that Beth Ann did. Without her, the opportunities wouldn't exist for me to do what I love. She's like a second mother to me. That one shining light of kindness. We're all students of Beth Ann Hardison. And I always say, just, you know, a hammock and a tequila, I'm good. You heard it first. (laughs) She's the godmother of fashion. When I started, I was the first black, black looking model on 7th Avenue. There was no people look like me. I knew the difference of segregation from childhood. These people thought that we were less. I let them know we are here. She realized she was the message. She represents this power. A lot of designers did not use models of color. No blacks, no ethnics. You don't know what it's like to be invisible. Where are the black girls? I saw the Black Girls Coalition. She moved our glamour and our good looks into the arena of activism. She's a game changer. She sacrificed a lot. My mother has enough ambition for the whole world. It's really hard as a single mom. I was scared to fail. She wants us to win more than anything. It gets a little challenging at times. But that's going to be part of your great story. I don't know who I think I am, but I do be trying. 
want to provoke conversation. We want to provoke ideas. I'm not here to put anyone down. I'm here to bring everybody up. Bethann was able to unify us. She has changed the way beauty is defined. But I still want to do more things. Keep your head up. There are a lot of young people out there who really have something to say. And they come along like a tsunami. They come along as a wave. The game's not over. Once you meet this person, it's going to change your life. Let's shake it up. Whether you like it or not. And now we could not be more excited to talk to Beth Ann herself. Beth Ann, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Beth Ann, welcome to Dressed. It's such an honor to have you with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy you wanted me to be with you today. Thank you. So I'm so excited to talk to you about this incredible documentary about your work and your life. And I wanted to start by asking you something that I ask a lot of our guests, because I think it's a a really interesting entry point into understanding people's relationship to fashion and, and dress in the industry. And I'm just curious, do you have an earliest memory of fashion or clothing? Yes, of course, because I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, Bethesda Simpson, and you have a lot of people with style around you. So you notice things, you know, there's a shoe or a double pleated pant or, you know, the way uh, a dress uh, my mother would wear that I liked. Or, yeah, you're always conscious of, uh, of style and clothing. Fashion, not so much. Fashion is long, many years later when people just embrace that word to the point that they're choking at the death. Yes, I agree. I agree. And as the film alludes to, you grew up in and around the New York City Garment District, and that's where you got your first job. But I was I was curious, how did you come to work there? Yeah, I didn't grow up in, well, I say, I use that expression to say that the majority of um, skills were taught to me, I feel, the basic skills were in the Garment District. That's where you grow mature, you know, as a young adult. But I came to work at the um, Cabot Button, Custom Button Factory. I looked up in the, back then in the New York Times, you'd always find, you know, the Times giving you ads where you can basically, you know, find jobs. And so I noticed this one that was in the garment business. And I think I was always at that point interested in the garment business, you know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to uh, be somewhere in that world. And so I went and applied for this job, and that's how that was the first job I got was at this, this uh, button factory. And what was that like to be in New York at the, in the kind of the middle of the garment district at that time? I mean, you see it kind of immortalized in films and TV shows, but had it been something else to have been there and see it firsthand? To you, it's just very normal, yeah. you know, because you're people <laughs> rushing back and forth, notion shops, trucks of bolts of fabric being pushed down the street, rollers of racks running up and down with guys trying to get the, the finished garments to from a factory probably to a design uh, studio or something. And the buildings are great because they're big, tall buildings that you go in. And it's many, many, you know, many floors. So you get off at 10. Or, and the side streets are more the business side streets where all the, like I just mentioned, the notions and all that are. And, and the, the, the main avenues, which are like 7th Avenue, is the main avenue in Broadway. It's the main avenue of more thoroughfare in a different direction. So it is as exciting, it sounds like, as, as it's depicted. Because you think of, of people just kind of rushing back and forth with the racks and the, and the bolts of clothing. In the film, you describe Willie Smith and Stephen Burroughs as your pillars. And they're clearly significant forces in your early modeling career. Can you tell us a little bit about these two designers and 
maybe how you became a model in the first place? Well, Willie Smith was a young designer. Um, he was before the success of, uh, of Stephen Burroughs. He was a young designer at that time. Had left Parsons, I think he went to. But I think what he wind up doing is leaving his school early and wind up getting as a young guy. I think he was 19 or 20 when he got a job for a company called Digits. It was a sportswear, junior sportswear company. And he, he worked in that very well and started getting notifications in our trade paper, which is Women's Wear Daily, you know, indicating because they always would report what was going on in the industry. Uh, and, you know, you would see Digits a lot. And then, you know, you knew he was a, was a designer. Uh, at one point, he saw me constantly. He would see me in the, in the garment area, walking the streets of the garment area. He thought that I was a, de- a designer. And he liked my style. And he he didn't want to find out who was I. And then he asked a young woman who does all of the, the she would be a runner between like the buying offices and, and the manufacturers. And he, she said, oh, I think I know who that is. But I don't think she's a designer. I think she works at Louis Manchester, which is true. And so he then met me. And then he asked me if I, when we met, we took, he got my information. I sent him a note. Yes, yes, it's, I'd love to meet you. And we met in the 1407 Club, which was right down the bottom of the 1407 building on Broadway. And he brought a friend, Harriet Selwyn, with him. And they talked to me. And I, he said he thought I was a designer. I said I wasn't. And then he asked me what I considered maybe, you know, working with him sometimes, like just do some appearances with him when I was available to do so. And I told him I had a full-time job. But I went up and told Ruth and, and, and uh, Sylvia, and they were excited for me. They were always excited for me. Oh, this is so great. You can do that. That's great. That was back in the late 60s. Even Burroughs comes along later. And Willie Smith, actually, was someone who knew one of the young guys who was part of that, that crew of Stephen Burroughs, Bobby Breslau, and asked him to send me to meet Stephen. So consider me to model for Stephen. But at the time, Stephen didn't get me. He wasn't, it wasn't his kind of, it wasn't his type. But eventually, back after, say, many things happened, uh, he was bought by Ben Shaw and brought to 7th Avenue out of Bindles, and they needed a showroom model. And Roz, who was his partner, asked me what I consider coming to be the showroom girl. And that's how I started with Stephen. And eventually with Stephen, I wound up running the design studio and I became his foot model. Yeah, I was going to say, I love that about uh, its mission in the film, how you are also his assistant. So you're really getting like a 360 view of how the industry and the design process works. Exactly. Exactly true. Exactly true. I, fit, I did fittings for Compulgus Rough and I did fittings for different people. So you did get that relationship. Yes, you are working you know, with them as fitting. You get the chance to be really behind the scenes in, in development of garments. And helping to, you know, help shape and decide how something fits, how something feels. And then you wind up also being their model as well. And something I also really appreciate about the film, well, and obviously it's integral to your story, is the significance of Chester Weinberg to your career. And he gave you your first runway modeling job. And this is an experience that you describe in the film as being the only time you ever doubted yourself. Can you tell us about that experience in your life and career working with Chester and what it meant to you moving forward? Yeah, he was the first one who gave me an opportunity to to work on the other side of the street where the renowned designers were, like the Jeffrey Beans and the Norman Norells and Bill Blass and Oscar De Laurentiis, those kind of guys. Those are where we, we were much more on the other side of the road, which is on Broadway, which we much more junior dresses and junior sportswear. As a model, I had not worked with these designers before. 
um, these kind of like, you know, classic, real serious designers. Right. But Willie was quite different. And so that first show was quite, a, yeah, it was quite, you always remember it because of the fact that the, I, I never, people think, well, did you think it was because you were black? And I never thought it was because I was black. I just thought they had a hard time looking at me, the audience, because of the fact that I was different than what the other girls always looked like. I was the next wave of that kind of interesting kind of model coming along. Right. Besides someone like Chuck Howard also was another designer who was on that side of the street who also believed in me, but he was one of the first ones. So of course the experience was kind of hard because the audience let me know that I made them uncomfortable. (laughs) So they began to just chat amongst themselves when I would come out. That was tough. But he was your champion, right? You talk about how he just was like your champion that whole time. He, uh, you know, he could hear, he could hear something. And then in those days, that's where, Designers only showed in their, their showrooms, in the actual shows of the, the atelier. They didn't do it outside or in other venues. And he would come to me because I had two more outfits I had to wear. So he came to me and trying to give me encouragement. You know, come on, you're so beautiful. Don't, you know, you're all right. And I was getting ready to cry. <laughs> I didn't want to go back out there. Go straight to the bathroom and he stay in there until the show was over. But in the end of the day, yeah, he, he got me through it. And that's when I learned a certain style of walking, a certain style of presence. It made me have to stand strong to how to get through a moment like that. Look at the audience. Look at someone. Never hold your head down and, and have that confidence to do that. Yeah. And it's really that confidence through which you made your mark as a model during this period in which you played a really central role throughout the late 60s and 1970s. You're at the forefront of the Battle of Versailles, which is so fascinating. It's the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Versailles. So November 28th, 1973. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience? And at the time, did you have any idea what it would mean to so many people? No, I think we all learned about it more way after fact like you know it was significant that night because it, you're going into something that was supposed to be a benefit you know five american designers the actuality of elmo lambert having that idea and having uh francois de la Renta, who's deceased now the first wife about oscar come up with this idea because she knew a lot of the europeans and so to come together to benefit the marie antoinette theater that needed repair so it was just an idea that Eleanor had to put the American designers in Paris. But as it was a nice idea of just being something that was just a benefit, the French press later, many months later, started saying they named it a battle. They started saying that, you know, it was ridiculous that we were going there, that, you know, that there's no way that we could even compete with the European designers because they're true couturiers and we're just sportsmen. We were never supposed to be competing. It was supposed to be a benefit. And so it turned it. Right. <laughs> then we started getting nervous. <laughs> we were scared to call. <laughs> People were going to come and support us. But they started backing out. <laughs> I think Mary Lou Luther and uh, Bill Cunningham, the only two people that I remember, was even there from America. And I think in the end of the day, because of mishaps for us, it made it work out better for us. Like our sets didn't come together because they weren't measured properly. We measured in inches instead of centimeters. We didn't have anything. And we were so bare bone. But we had the girls, we had the clothes, and we had music, which they never had done. And our girls moved. We, we, we really showed the dresses or the clothes. And the French were so preparing to do like an Ed Sullivan show, which is a, a true variety show, that they had anything and everything. You thought that maybe they would shoot a man out of a cannon at one point. 
They had right. I think there's like a ballet and an orchestra, right? I mean, it was very over the top, like very ex- extravagant. Move one set out, the next thing, Barishnikov uh, would dance, and then he moved the next set out. Then Josephine Baker would perform. They moved the next set, and the crazy girl. So it was just variety of Paris, and then in between would be the clothes. You know, it was a lot. In the end of the day, we wind up winning, and we went. We were presented first, but they threw the programs up in the air and started screaming "Bravo, Bravo." Uh, we knew we wanted something, and that that stayed. They didn't. Nobody did that for their segment, <laughs> but they did it for ours. And so we wind up being a wonderful night for everyone. Josephine Baker, who I'd known from from Stockholm, Sweden, she was so excited. She kept pointing a finger at me from a distance, saying, "You must take me backstage to meet the girls." She was so proud. The American girls. Yeah. So it was really kind of a nice thing in that way. Yeah. And in the end of the day, we walk away. We leave that place. Nobody thinks about it anymore. You know, it was just a moment in time. It was, it was kind of treacherous at moments because it was cold, palace, no toilet paper, enough in the bathrooms, not, not good food to eat. You know, it was tough for those days of rehearsing and all. But I think maybe 10 years ago, the Metropolitan Museum has a diversity division there. And they recognized and learned about Versailles and recognized how many girls of color were in that show. And then that's how it came back on. No one ever knew about this before. So now it's like a big thing. How could you not know, you know? Yeah. So only because they gave us that luncheon and they and they gave us the citation and they invited all the fashion people. And, and, and the majority of fashion people that are now current didn't even, even didn't know of that before. Two, two movies were made, documentaries were done on it. Robin Gavon's book, she's come on the show and talked to she, us. Her, her book is so <laughs> yeah. funny, right? That was her first book. And in hers, yeah. that was a, you know, very interesting that she would base it on this concept. So it was really nice. And then also HBO bought her option, her book. And then they were going to have Ava DuVernay make a narrative film about it. And now all of a sudden it's like, you know, you got to know about, you know, the Battle of Versailles. It's popular now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and how do we not know about it? It's so incredibly significant when you start to learn the history, not just for American fashion, but the significance that there was 10 black models there, right? I mean, there, it's history making. And it's like, why don't we know these stories? Keep talking. That's a very good thing that you're saying, Cassie, because oftentimes I say to a lot of young designers, they say, how is it that we didn't know about this designer? There's a lot of stuff that's in the world that's going by. I can name a lot of people that you wouldn't know. They said, well, we should know more about the Latino designers. Well, along the way, there's that information, and then things just get crowded, and then then it gets lost. It's hard to keep up and know everything, especially at a time when now you're infused by information coming at you daily. You're seeking it, you know? Well, and that's one of the reasons I like learning about Chester Weinberg, too, because he's one of those people who he was a huge name in the 60s and 70s. He was a very, very famous designer. But he died. He was one of the first fashion designers to die of AIDS in the 19, I think, in like the early 1980s. And he's just written out of history. And so, you know, it's like learning about these people and putting them in their proper place and their proper context of history. It takes a lot of work, right? People have to do that work to bring them back, but it's it's work worth doing. And I just heard from the girls who are writing his book or something. They're doing something. Oh, good. I hear about, I hear from them. And they just recently sent me some pictures just two days ago. They wanted to know, was that me? Was this me in the show that I was talking about? But it wasn't. It looked like me, but it's a girl named Pal Henry. So I corrected that for them. So they obviously are still doing something about him. 
Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Throughout my own research into the pages of Women's Wear Daily, it's so clear that you are omnipresent in the social scene of, say, like 1970s New York, because you, you're you just all over the pages. You're friends, you know, with people like Grace Jones, Andy Warhol, Keith Haring. You're dancing at Studio 54. And I thought it was really interesting in the documentary, Iman says she pleads the fifth on talking about the 70s. But I was <laughs> curious if maybe you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what it was like during that period. Yeah, no. Doing an interview with a, a gentleman from the New York Times just earlier, and he and I both grew up in New York and had that experience of being downtown kids and, and knowing it. it. It's very interesting, you know. Back in the day, you know, in the sixties, you know, people didn't have to rush around and have goals. You know, they didn't have to feel ambitious about things. A lot of slackers back in the sixties, and you know, people sit in cafes all day long and smoke weed and talk about, you know, philosophizing. We used to say, just talking about their opinions about things. You can live a nice life <laughs> living like that. But also you had this time when, you, you know, there were a lot of artists that came up at the time. And when it starts going more besides music in the 60s and then going into the 70s, New York City was really interesting. A lot of, you know, the buildings that all the, ma- you know, the manufacturing buildings started to, to go out of business in the, in, the, in the area, which was then named Soho, the south of Houston. Yeah. So you had these kind of design, these, these uh, artists that were able to get these lost for like $25 a month or $35 a month and, you know, live in them. And as well as 
as do the work in them. And you had no stores. I knew one store. Um, Jackie Lewis was the only one I knew had a boutique in, in all of Soho. And there was one little grocery store, no candy store on the corner of Prince. And, and it's so interesting about that. When I say that, people say, are you kidding? Because now the, the whole environment is in oh, yeah. stores and, you know, merchants and everybody that go there. Yeah. Imagine this, this place with none of that. This one girl, she came to, and I was so surprised because she's been living in Jamaica, but she came to one of the screenings. It just shocked me. And she stood up and said, and, and she started talking and she said, this is Jackie. Goes, I, I. <laughs> and she was the first one to have a retail store that had clothes and shoes in seventh on on uh, on West Broadway, and so you know we had this time in the seventies where everything was kind of interesting. Yes, a lot of little dance clubs, a lot of nice little dance clubs when you didn't have alcohol, and you know Paradise Garage, you know um, the Loft, Leviticus, and then along comes two guys, Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, out of Queens, and they come and I mean they weren't from Queens, but they had a business in Queens. And they started something called Studio 54, which I was resenting because they said they were going to have a bar. And the one thing dancers didn't do was drink. So I was like, oh, I was fighting the fever at the very whole time. And of course, we did go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, it was a different scene, of course. It changed the world. It changed the world of clubs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now you still go around the world and you'll see people standing outside, bodyguards, you know. And I just go past places no matter where I'm in the world and say, Steve, look what you started. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And I'm just curious because you're working with Steven and Willie during these periods. Are you wearing a lot of their designs? Do you still have some of these clothes that you were wearing in the 70s and 60s? I look at this all the time and think about that. I, I don't know. I've made mistakes. I purged and gave things away. We all do that. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes people say, oh, my God, really? You don't keep anything? Well, some things don't fit anymore. I had Azaline to lie. I had a lot of Azaline. I kept like a raincoat that he gave me, my wedding dress, of course, he gave me. And I kept like a belt or something like that. Stephen, same thing, having a couple of things of Bobby Breslow and, and Stephen, all that time frame. Also, Willie, I have just, honestly, all I have with Willie is a shirt. But throughout the, that period, you were wearing the designers you were working with. It's just so fun to think of, especially in terms of Stephen, because we all know his like vibrant color blocking. To think of all of you going out dressed in his clothes is just something... It's nice to imagine. <laughs> Time, yeah, we did. We, I would work with Stephen, and I was. We would laugh about this, and you know, we didn't wear underwear with our dresses, so you, you know, you, so you didn't have no line showing in right jersey, rayon, Matt jersey. So, and always we go out to Fire Island a lot. And we would dance in the clothes, and he made them for that. He made a lot of that for you know for those kind of for the movement, you know, for movement and all. So it was kind of fun in that way. So you're modeling throughout the 70s and early 80s. And in 1984, you made the decision to start your own modeling agency. Can you tell us a little bit about what prompted that shift from being a model to managing models? Well, I was a runway model. And I also had a full-time job the whole time I was a runway model. I never could afford. If I didn't have a job, it was only because I had gotten let go and, and I had to get on to the next job. But I always kept a full-time job at, because I couldn't afford to be a model financially solo. And I was a runway model. wasn't a print girl. You know, run models, runway models and print models were separate for a long time. Right. From the beginning of time until it wasn't. And that's when Calvin Klein had the, the print girl come onto the runway. So 
I didn't want to do it. It was other people who made me do this model agency thing. <laughs> Big resistance on my part. But they were trying to talk me into the fact, well, where, what else are you going to do? So, you know, I had come from a model agency and I was known. And there's a French woman who wanted me to do a model agency with her in New York. And so I started the model agency that way because of the fact that she wanted me to do it. And I thought, OK, I'll do it with her. And then I found out from my accountant that she had no intention of making me a partner that she wanted me just to work for. And I thought, I'm not going to leave the company that I like, that I love working with them, to go work with somebody for them. No, no, that's not going to work. So then I was stuck. I already found the the location and and I already had girls who were like waiting for me to to start the agency. So I started with with Tani Welch and got her to Rome where she was going to do a film right away. And I just started the agency. I was not a passion of mine. And I kept thinking about how can, if I get in, how can I, how soon can I get out? That was my question. I just want to get out. <laughs> and they were like, give us at least five years. I said, oh, five years. And then I had gotten a little bit of money to start it. Just thought it would take a little time to get the money to pay the person back, which we did it very quickly. And then I wind up getting stuck in it. Once you start being successful in something, then it's hard to get out. So that's the reason why it started and it had great results. And I made it diverse because I knew that, you know, if I was going to start a model agency, I had to make sure that I, I was able to compete with my white counterpart. I'm a, a, a woman of color, but I definitely wasn't going to try and have a black model agency. I had worked with a model agency that was already like white with some Latin kids and a couple of Latin kids and a couple of black kids. I knew to make sure that, you know, I could compete in them in that world. And I mean, models you have re- represented and discovered are people like Kamora Lee Simmons, Veronica Webb, Rashumba, Tyson Beckford. That was a revelation. Learning about your role in making him the face of Ralph Lauren. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience of working with some of these models and then just seeing them become these internationally recognized celebrities? Yeah, that's interesting. It was good working with the models. It's very true. And I know the reason why I haven't wanted to leave it is because 12th year, I learned that I could get out of this. But I, having the discoveries that really make you stay in it. Right. You know, you, you keep saying, find this one person, and they're so good, then you want to help develop them. And then they, and then good things are happening from the development. So then you, 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 you have joy with it. Those are your little awards, as I always say. Booking agents only get those kind of awards when someone says, okay, let's book them. Okay, let's give them the job. So discovering someone like Veronica was one of the early ones to come into the agency. Tani, as I said, was the person who I actually started the agency with, Tani Welch, Raquel Welch's daughter. And then, you know, having a few other girls, like Bonnie Berman was the one who was really quite, she was like the number one model in the world at the time. And she was the one who was my main you know, she was my mainstay. She was the one who found the money for the agency. She's the one who became like my business partner. She was the one. And, you know, you then get people like Rashumba and you're, you're excited to have her. And she picks you over four. And that's a great thing. And you know, <laughs> then we kept the agency small and tight. And, you know, Kamora, when she was every bit of, I think she was 14 or 15 when I learned about her. And she comes from Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri. And then after that, she had gone, her agency in Missouri sent her to Paris to work for Carl Lagerfeld. And then they had already let me know about her and wanted me to come because I was known to be a nurturer and all. And she was young. So I wind up having her and she came to live with me. And most of the girls who came from outside came, they stayed in my home and stayed with me. And so it was great. Discovering Tyson was a whole nother thing. His friend and he were looking at TV one night. My son is Kadeem Hardison and he was on a different world. Kadeem would be doing different late night talk shows. And they discovered him there, whoever it was, it be Jay Leno or whoever. 
he was on show. They were always, so what's your mother doing now? Because I was had, he always had interesting stories about me. And these young this young guy who was with Tyson at the time said, this is who we should go see. And he wanted Tyson to consider modeling's professional. So he brought him to our agency. That's how we have Tyson. And then, of course, within a year, Tyson had taken off. You have that wonderful experience with one of the top advertisers in the world, like Ralph Lauren. It was really wonderful. And something you've just spoken to, and that comes across very clearly in the film, is that it was really about your relationship with these models. And you really became this kind of safe place and the support group for these models. And you care about them. And they so very clearly care about you. It's so omnipresent throughout the film is that you've meant so many things to so many different people. And that includes the many models you worked with over the years who describe you as a mother figure and so much more than an agent. And so it's it's really wonderful to see and to learn about. And many of these models worked with you when you formed the Black Girls Coalition in 1988. Can you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind that creation? Yeah, you know, everyone thinks it was for more an activist situation where I was trying to do something in regards to race. And it wasn't. I was doing something to celebrate the girls because so many girls of color were working, but not just working, but they were working editorially. We had never had that before. right? And they don't know that because they're just coming into the industry. What do they know? I needed to show them that this was something that was significant, but also to let them have an opportunity to work with each other for a greater cause. And for me at that moment in the 80s, homelessness in this city was so running rampant in such a way that I just needed to do something about that. And mostly because children were being double victimized because their families were having to have to be evicted and they have to go into shelters. And I just wanted to be able to do something. So the idea of let's celebrate these girls, do a big event, but at the same time, make other people aware of a crisis we have and give back and have these girls be seen, but also have them, how they could use their celebrity, but also at the same time, uh, learn to work together. So that, you know, it's a very competitive world, you know, modeling period. And especially when you're only, your girls of color, it's even more competitive, but it wind up being something really wonderful. That's the start of it. And we did many parties and everybody would come. It was just fun. But then at some point, I kept watching what was going on in the advertising industry, that the advertisers were not reflecting their consumers and that that needed to be addressed. And I got the interest of Mark Green to please come and have a press conference. That was the time it started to turn and start to care about the racial diversity uh, in the advertising industry. And that was a great moment. Yeah, absolutely. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there's all this significant progression in terms of Black representation in the fashion industry. And then it seems to come this near halt in the 1990s. And in the film, it's equated to this historical event, right? It's equated to the Berlin Wall coming down. And I just had never thought of it in those terms, but it's really interesting, right? Can you just talk a little bit about what the Berlin Wall had to do with representation in 1990s fashion? Like what happened to fashion and the face of fashion in the 90s after all of this, this progress that had been made. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I use the Berlin Wall as a metaphor. Yeah, but it's, it was potent, yeah. it's a very potent metaphor. <laughs> the, the actuality of it is that at some given point, model uh, scouts could go into Europe and start bringing out and scouting models. They couldn't do that before. Right. So they all of a sudden were bringing girls out of Europe into America or into Europe. Two other things that happened is that we didn't have before 
what we call casting directors for designers, nor did we have okay. stylists before. These are all brand new things. So you add that also with the ability for people to go and scouts that go into other regions. At this point, we have designers that have now no longer just their, their team doing what always they did before when I modeled. Yeah, it was just you go up to the Calvin Klein and you sit and you talk to his assistant. His, his One of his assistants calls all the model agencies. Even back then, that's, even when I had my model agency, that's how things worked. Now it's outside people. And these outside people don't have the same passion right. <laughs> about who we were and what it was in our history of what it all was. They're, this is their job now. So they can just have a you know new idea about it. And so what wound up happening, they started having these girls come into play. And once, you know, designers all are individual until one designer does something and then everyone follows. They don't, they don't think of themselves as being, you know, copycats or doing the same things. But they do. It's, it becomes, they set trends this way. And all of a sudden, you know, next thing you know, one designer eliminates glamour, race, everything. And she just focuses or he just focuses on this one image of girl, type of girl, that they're no longer looking, want you to be distracted by the movement of a girl or the look of a girl. Just look at the clothes. Right. So the girls are booking are just very Eastern European blondes, mostly, that are just basically that girl that you don't know. So they all sort of look alike, the same. And they pull the hair back into a chignon and you send them out and you just don't notice the girl. That became this significant that you think is going to pass and then it doesn't. And it goes on for like a decade. Then you start saying, oh, I got to come back and do something. Yeah, you you actually you leave your modeling agency or close the modeling agency and you did move away and then you come back, right? Because you're basically called back. Um, people need you here. I think there is a correlation with the fact that one of the biggest voices for black models and representation wasn't here, right? And so designers could get away with without being called out in many ways. And I think it's really interesting, too. So you you started your own modeling agency in 1984. You had the Black Girls Coalition in 1988 and again in 1992. And then in 2007, you're basically called back to hold this forum or this roundtable again in 2007 to say, what is going on? Where are all the Black models? Why do you think this has been, I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but why has this been such a standing struggle for the fashion industry? Why in 2007, and of course, even all the way up till today, which we'll get to, but what, why, why has this been such a standing struggle? Why don't they understand the importance and significance of having representation on the runway? Is it just that designers don't care? You know, it's interesting. I don't think that they don't care. I think they just got caught up in a trend. It's like getting caught up a swirl. You know, and the swirl is just your comfort zone. And then everybody's swirling. So just let's keep it swirling. And then you have these outside forces. Not like the, you know, the <laughs> designers can have compassion. But then you have people you hire to come work for you. And they are looking to do what's new or what's hot or interesting. And then they all start going down the same road. I, I have a huge resentment for casting directors and, and stylists. I resent them. Because they came along and changed the game with no sensitivity. And you you watch the designers just give up their power to these outside hirees. And now no longer model is muse. In other words, models, you don't find the designer having these relationships with models like Yves Saint Laurent did with his cabine 
or as Mr. Givenchy did with his cabbie, or like Stephen Burroughs did, did with his cabbie. You, you don't see that, you know, anymore. It's, it's like disappeared. Like, you know, Calvin had girls he abused all the time. And then it just changed. Glamour left. They wanted to take it. Linda Vangelista couldn't have gotten booked. And she's not, she's not black. You know, she couldn't have gotten booked. It was just a change of the game. The idea of the of fashion had just become so different. The idea of the model industry had become so different. And that was unfortunate right. in so many ways. And luckily, I would just go down to my home in Mexico when I wanted to leave my model agency. But then I started getting a call because, you know, like, you got to come back. You got to come back. There's something. Somebody that they knew had a voice along and was respected was the thing. And New York Times had written an interesting article about me when I left the industry to talk about, you know, who was going to do the work. I didn't think of it. I was just wanting to get out. Right. And you're such a respected person in the industry and someone who really, and a galvanizing force, right? A driving force that really brought people together. And you see that time and again throughout the documentary. It's like people really respect you and really listen to you and what you have to say. In 2007, you you brought together this diversity coalition. And then you have what I think they call in the film Beth Ann's Army. So you had people from within the industry who were kind of like going out around the world and reporting back to you what was going on so that it could become clear but what also becomes clear in the movie is it doesn't it doesn't happen in 2007 right it's in 2013 you send this letter out you've had enough and you actually call designers out by name and brands out by name what was the impetus behind that yeah we had a we started having a movement by the time I came back in 2007 I just basically um it took a few took a little time I got it back in, like, say, 2004, consciously. It just took about four years or so before I could get on that horse again because it's a lot of work to, to you know, take energy. Yeah. And it's not work per se, but it takes a certain – you got to drive up a certain passion to address industry that is national and internationally too. So you call it out. You have this press conference in 2007. This is just me doing this. It's not, I don't have the, the backup band yet. And uh, and it was a great press conference, mixture of many th- different people in the industry, plus some press. But then one thing that had happened in that meeting in 2007, I called out the fact that they said no blacks, no ethnics. The casting directors would tell the model agencies, no, I'm sorry, we're not seeing black girls this season. We're not seeing black boys this season. Then they start sending out just a bold letter. Just send the letter, no blacks, no ethnics. Not even hiding it anymore. You know, people say, how could they say that? Well, we have to talk. You know, it's a physical business. We have to describe what we want. If we want redheads, we have to ask for redheads. So it's not rude, really, for them to to say that. But when they say it over and over, because it could be someone's aesthetic, but if it becomes a consistency, when it starts to become like every season, now the model agencies are not trying to have more girls of color because the few that they have, nobody wants. And the problem with the model agencies, I used to have a little problem with the model agencies because they needed to fight against it. But it was hard to fight against it because these these casting directors now also, in these stylists, also have jobs at other places that they like their girls to work. I think in the end, by, by the time from 2007, it started to percolate a little bit. Um, they, they started to get a couple little girls of color there. And it, it, it would go up a little bit, like the barometer would go up a little bit, then it would slide back down a little bit, then it would go up a little bit. So at some given point, yes, uh, after the all-black issue came out from uh, from Italian Vogue, which was brilliant, then at some given point, even though we were doing 
decent, you can still see the slide back. By 2012, 2013, all right, you got to do something. And I was at my home, <laughs> next, just sat there and wrote this short letter, two paragraphs. And I called two, two young men who were sort of like my backup man. <laughs> and uh, I individually let each one of them hear what I was writing because it was strong. And they both said the same thing. I guess there's no time. We have no choice but to send it. And, and, you know, one guy is black and the other one is white. These are my two guys because they were so entrenched in the industry. And so I sent it out and I sent it to all the councils of fashion of each city. Every fashion city would be New York, London, Milan, and Paris. And the response was, you know, immediate from London, immediate. And Paris was funny. I know the guy, so he was just funny. He just said, made no sense. But even Italy, they were responsive. They basically said, we had no idea that this was a problem. We, you know, they, they just didn't realize, and they, they wrote back, this is from the council, that they, they knew that there was an issue about health and the model's health and not having young girls, but no one had ever sent this out before. Well, it's just that people get caught up in a, in a rabbit hole, and it just they get, get comfortable because everyone's doing it. But the idea, literally, I could actually say, no matter if you use one or two or none, no models of color consistently for three seasons, consistently... No matter, no matter your intention, the results is racism was really just was so mind-blowing to so many designers. They were like, the last thing they want to be thought of is racist. So immediate change happened. Immediate. I mean, immediate. Like, Celine right away had a girl called Mucha uh, Prada had a, advertising. I mean, it, it just started to snowball quite nicely in that way. So today you remain a mentor, a driving Force things like you know the Battle of Versailles. So many more people learning about things that you were a central part of, right? And your significance. Looking back at your entire career and what you've done and what you've achieved, I have two a kind of a twofold closing last question. But where are we at today in terms of representation in fashion, and where do we still need to go? Well, where we are at uh, representation in fashion, if it's about the model industry, that seems to be having a good time. Everybody has girls of color and they can go from the spectrum of the lightest to the very darkest of West Africa. So they have learned that, you know, the beauty of the art of the fashion model of darkness can be so beautiful in winter clothes. Those are things that have been improved. <laughs> There's so many people have been since the Black Lives Matter movement with Mr. Floyd losing his life in that way, that so many designers have come along of color two who've come into the game and come into this market, this marketplace that is not, it's kind of tiny, this whole little right. big island. This is not such a big island, this little fashion industry. But the inhabitants are so many more, so many more, so many more. And it's worrisome because a lot of these brands have to find homes, you know, going out into the marketplace. That's worrisome to me in so many ways. And we talk about sustainability. We talk about it and we keep on making more clothes, more clothes, more clothes. No one feels like, you know, maybe we should just go live in a bunker somewhere and wear just, you know, some hemp things, you know, and keep it easy. So there's more people being encouraged to come out in the design world. And yet now that the Black Lives Matter movement has settled, there are a lot of people now finding difficulty in getting retail support. And the industry has always been competitive and always tough. But I love that you're mentoring not just models today. You're mentoring a lot of these designers. You know, I'm guiding. I, the word guide is a better word because mentor requires like ab- activism. 
consistency. <laughs> guide, support, guide and support. Yes, guide and support. I'm, I like to cut <laughs> a guide. When I'm around, you get good, good guidance. Yes, I do. I care very much about the designer stuff that I help. So in closing, I mean, I just want to thank you so much for this film and sharing this with all of us. It's an incredibly moving and touching film. And I just kind of wanted to ask you about this experience because the film also touches on how you've been working on your memoir. I'm not sure when your memoir is coming out, but I'll definitely be reading that. Um, And so it's really a, a reflection on looking back on your life and all you've achieved and accomplished and and what you've done all over all these years. What has this period of reflection been like for you? Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. And I'm glad that's the last question. <laughs> I have to give a good thought on that. I think what it's been for me is that I learned that I have had value. Because I didn't know I had a story. But what I've learned from this whole process is really the value that I never had before. Before, I'm just doing the work. I'm just, a, you know, look, I'm a revolutionary. I'm just getting it done. Things need to be done. So we get it done. But I thought until I saw the film on in, in full, sitting there watching it at Sundance, really. I mean, first when he sent me four hours of footage, I knew I, was, I became a believer. But once we, when he saw the film with an audience and all, you know that it's, it's significant and that I have to stop being so modest <laughs> and learn to value what you've done that makes everyone love this film and of course. Frederick is a great uh, storyteller, great filmmaker, actually. And I'm so happy to be the co-director of it. Invisible Beauty has taught me a lot about me, but also has allowed me to understand my value and the value and all that I have done. And it's so nicely told in such a way that there's not a soul that doesn't say, what a great film. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. And I think that I walk away just knowing that's something I've now learned. And it took me years. You can keep learning. I mean... I've learned my value. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing this film with us and taking us into your life and your journey. And I just really appreciate your time and you joining me today. And I thank you very much for having me. Bethan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing additional insights into your life and work. Dress listeners, this is a really nice primer for the documentary, which of course you are all going to rush out and watch. And we will provide a link to it in our show notes. And that will connect you to all of the platforms where it is currently streaming and the theaters and film festivals where you might be lucky enough to view it in person. And I cannot say enough wonderful things about this film. All fashion history documentaries are not created equal, dress listeners. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. (laughs) So it's really, really nice to see Beth Ann's life and work get the thoughtful treatment it so well deserves in this film. And as we mentioned, the film is co-directed by Frederick Chang, who is also responsible for two other fantastic fashion documentaries. And that is 2014's Dior and I, which is about Raph Simmons' time helming Dior, as well as the 2019 documentary Halston. And of course, we will certainly keep you posted also about the release of Beth Ann's memoir. Well, that concludes our conversation with and about Beth Ann and Invisible Beauty dress listeners. May you consider the driving forces shaping the fashion you see and wear next time you get dressed. Dress listeners, you are going to have lots more fashion history viewing and reading suggestions coming your way in the next couple of weeks because we are nearing the end of season six in just a few weeks' time pass. Can you believe that? We are about to embark on the seventh year of Making Dressed. 
just, it's insane how fast time <laughs> really does fly. I mean, I still remember the very first day I met you, April, like it was yesterday. I know. Of course, this was at your current workplace, the Special Collections Department at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And as we always love to say, it was love at first fashion plate. Mm-hmm. That was over a decade ago. So That's it is crazy. a very special place for both of us and a place actually that you two can join us at, dress listeners, um, on our upcoming New York City Fashion History Day Tours, which are going to take place December 7th, 8th, and 9th. We have just a few spots left if you want to join us for three jam-packed days of behind-the-scenes tours, which are not available to the general public. And let's just say this is not perhaps the first and last time we'll be offering these tours. Mm -hmm. You can find all the information about our upcoming, this upcoming tour, but a potential other upcoming tours on our website, dresshistory.com, which we are very excited to share will also in the next few weeks done to done have a listing for the first ever dressed online courses coming your way live with me in january just a little primer dress listeners each week i will share stories from the pages of a specific era in fashion history before giving you the skills to date that era's fashion yourself in a follow-up course in april what do you have up your sleeves for our listeners in the coming months Oh, well, coming January 2024, um, you can actually expect to see Fashion History Friday Nights at the Met with me. Um, I will be leading fashion history tours in the permanent collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And Friday nights, the Met is actually open late. So it's kind of like date night at the Met is kind of how they (laughs) advertise it. So you can join me live in person for a little fashion history fun at the Metropolitan Museum of Art coming in 2024. So if these tours and courses are already piquing your interest, send us an email at hello at dresshistory.com to get on a list and you will be the first to know when our courses and these tours are officially posted. And of course, we always just love hearing from you. So you are always encouraged to send us an email just to say hello, or you can direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels accompanying each week's episode. If you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed 332. That's dressed and the numbers 332. And remember, you can find an array of our favorite and podcast featured fashion history titles on our dressed bookshelf that is available through bookshop.org. And you can find a link to our bookshelf in our show notes, um, as well as the link to sign up for the ad free version of dressed, which is just $3 a month by subscribing through our exclusive content. As always, thank you for your continued support. More dressed coming your way on Thursday. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.